It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. Welcome into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, August eighteenth, two thousand sixteen. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Good to be with you as well, and good to have you on the other end of the line, whether you're listening to us live or listening to us in the podcast. If you're listening to us live, the chat room to the bottom of your video window is open and ready for you to comment. And if you're listening to us live or in the podcast tonight, we welcome your comments at any time. Questions at collegeview.com and uh, toll-free, 877-381-4567. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. We're glad that you're here. And uh, before we get started, we have a few more bumper stickers. If you'd like to help us you get got, the word out, got some left. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, send me a, a bumper sticker and give us your snail mail address. Also, if you're not on our regular update email update list, send us uh, that email to questions at collegeview.com. Get on our weekly update. All right. And uh, to that update, you sent out uh, some topics for tonight. Uh, Pretty Before we do that, topics. Well, yeah, yeah, we got six uh, topics. We'll have to hurry to get to them. But I was—I thought I'd make a, a, an appeal uh, before we get into this. You know, last week I thought we had an interesting discussion uh, with a fellow who's associated with the Cowboy Church movement, right? And we really love to do those kind of interviews. We we really have trouble getting people to agree to do that. So we might enlist the help of our uh, listening audience. If you know someone, a member of a denominational church, uh, doesn't have to be a preacher, but someone who who cares to defend what they believe and practice, and they'd be willing to come on and talk with us about their particular denominational views, we would love to talk to them. And I hope we were uh, demonstrating last week. It's a it's a gentlemanly discussion. We're not going to get mad and yell and carry on. Uh, and we so, don't want to make anybody look bad, and we don't. Uh, we're not trying we're to win say a fight. What, we're we're going to say when we disagree, but we're right. going to we're going to we're going to let. Uh, we just want to uh, get the facts out there, yeah. and, and let people make their mind up for what uh, lines up with the scripture. Yeah. So, uh, just a little bit of an appeal: if you know a denominational preacher or member who would be willing to discuss their views with us on the virtual Bible study. Uh, it could be any any religious group. Let uh, you know, yeah. be the middleman for us, and, and we'll try to get that set. Yeah. Up. So what you you know, maybe you're listening to us, and uh, you think, well, these guys are crazy. I got to get my preacher to come in and and show them the, the truth. Well, we welcome that. Yeah. Get your preacher, and uh, have him come and uh, and talk to us about things you may disagree with. So we welcome that anytime. Send us an email: questions at collegeview.com. We got Josh behind the board tonight. We got to get him in these. Oh yeah, we forgot questions. to introduce Josh. Josh, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. You ready to go on some answers? I'm ready. You're ready. All right. He's All right. Ready. We got six questions. This is listener smorgasbord night. We love these too. We love to do interviews. We love to do question and answer nights. And yeah. so what we usually do is save up a bunch of questions until we get enough that we will be able to fill a program with interesting discussion, and then we put one out. It seems like we do it fairly often because we get quite a few questions, but we want more. Send your questions to collegeview.com, questions at collegeview.com. 
So, I'm not going to read these ahead of time. We'll just take them one at a time. The first one comes from our friend Chris in Atlanta, who asks simply, What is blasphemy of the Holy Ghost? Can it be done today? And if so, how? Good question, Chris, and thanks for that. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a question that comes up a lot. And uh, and, and I, my guess is Chris knows the answer to that, but he was trying to spark some conversation yeah. here. Uh, but... Uh, the text in question is Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 31. Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoso speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in, this world, neither in the world to come. Interesting. Now, I think to understand that statement, you have to understand the, what had just happened uh, in in this situation where Jesus was. Uh, Jesus had cast out, verse 22, uh, was brought to him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Yeah. And so they basically were rejecting the the work of the Holy Spirit, the, uh, which was uh, the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus to perform miraculous signs in confirmation of the fact that he was the Son of God. And so that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was. They were assigning the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. They're saying he's not doing that by any power except the power of Satan himself. And so if you were to say, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is to assign the work of the Holy to, to deny the work of the Holy Spirit, to deny the miraculous manifestation and the confirming, revealing power of the Holy Spirit and the work that he did in that realm. All right. Uh, certainly that would have been the application of the first century. Now, Chris's question can it be done today? Well, I think there's two ways to look at that. One is there are no miracles being performed today. You know, right. nobody could see a person cast out a devil and say, you cast out that devil by the power of Satan. You couldn't do that because nobody's doing that today. Uh, there are now, now, that's a whole other study in itself, talking about the end of the miraculous age. We believe the miraculous age ended within the first century when God had finished his revelation to mankind. The scriptures plainly teach us that miracles would end and did end. Um, So nobody could see a miracle today and deny the Holy Spirit working that miracle through any given person uh, because miracles aren't happening. And so in that sense, you might say, no, you couldn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I think there would be parallels today, though. I mean, we yeah. could do the same. We could do the same. The end effect could be the same as what the Pharisees did there, yeah. where we deny the Holy Spirit and what He's done. Jesus said there'd be one sin that you couldn't be forgiven of. That'd be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All, all, all sins will be forgiven. But think about why wouldn't the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be forgiven? Because if I'm in that mindset to deny the revealing and confirming work of the Holy Spirit, then I am denying the truth that will save my soul. Jesus said in John eight thirty two, the truth you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But if I'm denying the working of the Holy Spirit, then I'm denying the truth that will set me free. I can't be forgiven of that. Yeah. That's why can, I can't be forgiven. Can can we link that with Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty six? 
For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remain there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Could that not be the same? I, I think it. I, I, this is the other side of that coin. I, I think there's two answers. One is you couldn't do it in the direct sense that these Pharisees were doing it because we're not going to see a miracle today. But this book is the product of the Holy Spirit's work, and he miraculously revealed and confirmed it to mankind. If I reject this book as being God's message to man revealed through the Holy Spirit, then I... Then I uh, I would be doing effectively the same thing. I would be rejecting the truth, which would set me free, and I couldn't be forgiven. As long as I continue to 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 reject the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, I can't be saved. And so the outcome would be the same. Right. Okay. Josh? No thoughts. Okay. No, okay. But, right. yeah, just keep those knobs looking good over there. Yeah, no, you don't have to talk. All right. No, the, but the thing of it is... I think I could change from that view. I, I could, I, as long as I'm in that situation, I'm not going to be forgiven. But I think I could come out of that situation by accepting the revelation that the Spirit gave through the Word of God. Uh, but as long, again, my point is, as long as we're in that mindset, we're not going to be forgiven. Okay. All right. Uh, well, how about we get Kent's uh, yeah, thoughts re- on that, yeah. and then we're over time for this question because we've got a lot to cover. Kent says in Calhoun, Georgia, thank you, Kent, for your comments tonight. He says, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in our age is a total rejection and repudiation of the work of the Holy Spirit to the point where one is hardened beyond repentance. In consideration of the total context of Matthew 12, 22 through 32, he goes back and gets the whole context as you did. He says, one can commit this specific sin today. If one can sin against Christ and the Father today, one can sin against the Holy Spirit today. Obviously, one does not sin against the Holy Spirit in the same way as individuals did during the earthly ministry of Christ, in that the Holy Spirit is no longer working miracles. Right. Right. However, one can reject and repudiate the completed work of the Holy Spirit in the divine revelation of the Word of God when one sins in this matter as so, to so harden their heart and going beyond repentance, one has accomplished the same sin as those committed in Matthew 12. I think you're right, Kent. You and Kent are on the same well, same wave tonight. Before we pass from that question, I just want to just make a point that this Sin against the Holy Spirit is not, and they are, it is not a parallel uh, reference to 1 John 5, verse 16. 1 John 5, 16 talks about a sin unto death. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. I don't think John was talking about the same thing there. Maybe in sort of a general way. I think John was describing a, a sin that a man won't repent of. If, if you sin a sin and you won't repent, then that's a sin unto death. And what John was saying, Jacob, if I saw you sin, but you adamantly say that you will not repent, then there's no use me praying for you that you'd be forgiven, because you're not going to be forgiven as long as you refuse to repent. Uh, if, on the other hand, I saw you sin a sin and you were immediately remorseful for it and you expressed repentance and you brought forth the fruits of repentance and you showed a changed life, then I could pray with you and for you that you'd be forgiven of that and God would forgive. Okay. I think that's what 1 John 5 verse 16 is talking about. I don't think it's the same sin that Jesus was describing specifically as blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. All right, Chris, thanks for your question tonight. Uh, It was a good discussion. Thank you for that. 
On to the next question from Doug. Doug is in uh, Michigan, in uh, in the thumb of Michigan. Hey, way up there. Thank yeah, you, Doug, yeah, for listening. For those of you who know where the thumb of Michigan is. Uh, and I've had to, I, I just, short, just shortened his question just a little bit. But he said he'd been studying in the book of Revelation. And he said, what exactly is meant by Satan being loosed again? Is he going to rise all nations against Christians in a similar fashion as the Roman Empire? Does God allow Satan to be loosed again to strike with great ferocity the church before final judgment? Is this coming? Are we living in it today? Or do we not really know and be faithful and move on? All right. I think that's a very interesting question that Doug has asked. And I've thought about that myself, too. And I'm going to, I'm going to qualify this by saying I think it is we don't know. And we just got to keep be faithful. I don't think we can say with certainty, but I've wondered about this myself. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal against him or set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Well, first of all, the thousand years. What is the thousand years? Well, the, the thousand years, we're in that period right now. The thousand years is describing the, the reign of Christ over his spiritual kingdom. We're in the thousand-year reign right now. We're not waiting for that. The premillennialists are wrong. That's not a future kingdom that's coming. That's the kingdom of Christ that exists right now. And what it, what the, the thousand years is not literal. There's a lot of things not literal in Revelation. The thousand years is not literal. It just t- talks about a long, enduring reign of Christ over his spiritual kingdom. Okay. Now, the text says that this angel came down and bound Satan cast him into the bottomless pit. But he only bound him in a specific way. The specific way that Satan was bound was that he, verse 3, that he should deceive the nations no more. Satan's not completely bound in our day. Now, he's limited. You know, back in the first century, Satan could could uh, have his demons indwell people and so forth, and, and so there's there's a there's some limitation on say, but he's not totally limited. First uh, Peter five verse eight says he stalks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's still busy in the world. He's still causing people uh, to be tempted and to sin. Mm-hmm. Satan's not completely bound. He's bound. This text says he's bound in a specific way that he should deceive the nations no more. Well, what had he been doing? Well, if you think about it, he had been deceiving the Jewish nation and the Roman Empire into believing that they could overcome God, that they could resist God's eternal kingdom, that they could be victorious over the kingdom of God. Satan had them believing, we can, we can knock this out. We can put an end to it right now. Uh, he had them believing it, and they were trying to do it. Uh, the book of Revelation, I really think, is describing a judgment of God against those nations who were opposing his spiritual kingdom. So Satan is bound, but bound specifically in the sense that he could deceive the nations no more. But then skip down to verse 7. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison 
and it shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So Satan's going to be loosed at the end of this time. For what purpose? Well, it's for we know what, how he was bound or what extent he was bound concerning deceiving the nation. He's going to be loosed to deceive the nations once more. Mm. Now, what would that deception be? Well, the deception in the first case was to get nations to believe they could resist God and his kingdom, that they could they could fight against God and his kingdom and be victorious in doing so. Satan had deceived them into believing that. So what would it be at the end? Well, probably the same thing, I guess. I don't know. But it seems like that, that if you're putting this all together, he's he'll be loosed. Well, he'll be loosed in what regard? That he can deceive the nations once more, it says. What would that deception be? That nations could resist God and his eternal kingdom and win. And that's not going to happen. But Satan will deceive nations into believing that they could. Now, I I think that's pretty straightforward in the text. The part of the question that we don't know is... Will Satan strike with the church with great ferocity before the final judgment? Is this coming? Are we living it today? I don't know. I don't know how you. I don't know how you would put a, a handle on that. I wonder sometimes, you know, because we do see nas- national elements opposing the truth of God. I mean, uh, we we see the Islamic nations in our day and time fighting against the kingdom of God. Could that be the fulfillment of Revelation 20? And, and if it is, does that mean that we're nearing the end? I can't make that statement, I don't th- and nobody can. It's a it's an interesting speculation, but you just got to leave it right there uh, in the realm of speculation. Uh, Kent says, It is my personal conviction regarding my study of Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8, that this passage sets forth in symbolic imagery that Satan will deceive the nations into believing that they can rule the world in the same way he deceived Rome. Right, right. I do not believe that such fits the false doctrine of premillennialism. This struggle will be moral and spiritual. Gog and Magog symbolize the sinful forces such as atheism, humanism, communism, materialism, socialism, and false religion. I, this, I believe, to be an ongoing situation since both the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the fall of Rome. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with much of what Kent's saying there, but the one thing that I would have a little difference with there's something that that was not ongoing because Satan was bound. In other words, the same the same thing hasn't Satan was bound there in the, in that time frame and will be loosed at the end of that time frame. So that wouldn't what he was what he was doing was was not ongoing throughout the course of that time because he was bound, so he couldn't do it. And at the end, he'll be loose so he can do it again, whatever that was. It was something to do with deceiving the nation. So I think Kent and I are very close on the same page as that. And, you know, are we in those last, uh, very last days? Are we nearing the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ uh, in his spiritual kingdom on earth? Um, I don't know. I don't know. It makes me wonder. But I think you just got to leave that in, in the realm of speculation. And I, I think what Doug said there... Do we really, do we not really know? I think we don't really know. And what do we do? We just keep being faithful and move on. That's all we can do. All right. When we get back from our break, we got a question from Don on predestination. Is it a false doctrine? And, uh, well, if you believe in it, what's that do to your 
condition with yeah, God. Yeah, get in the chat room. Those of you, the chat room is very quiet. What do you think, of, while we have this break, tell us what you think about Revelation 20. Are we in the, the time of Satan's final loosing uh, in the world today? And then we'll get on to Don's question about predestination. Yeah, well, he says you consider the doctrine of predestination a false doctrine. That's not a true statement. We'll clear that up. We'll clear that up on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. There's more of the virtual Bible study to come after these important messages. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Never invite trouble. It always accepts. There are some whose faith is not strong enough to bring them to all the services of the church, but they expect it to take them to heaven. Man, wish I'd said that. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the program tonight, uh, taking your questions. And, uh, well, you didn't get any takers in the uh, chat room tonight. so We're not going to hold that... you to it. We're not going to hold you to it. What do you think? Are we in the days of Satan's final loosing, Revelation chapter 20? Just just say yes or no. We'll know what you're talking about. But it's uh, uh, Or yes, no, or I don't know. All right, next up from Don. All right, we, ha- we haven't had any questions from Don. Don used to question us pretty often. This is the Don you know is in it, Nashville. Is this a recent question? No, it's been around for a while. Okay. I've just been putting off dealing haven't with heard it. from Don in a while. Don, if you're still out there, I'd like to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, Don says, since you, the, Don's from Nashville. He says, since you consider the doctrine of predestination a false doctrine uh, as opposed to the doctrine of free will. Well, let's stop right there. He's misrepresented us because we do not believe that we do not deny the biblical sense of predestination. But since he proposes it, he sets it in opposition to the doctrine of free will, then he's obviously not speaking about biblical predestination. Yeah, because biblical predestination allows free will. Yeah. But whatever he is identifying as predestination is opposed to free will. Right. And so he's not believing what the Bible says about predestination. Look at a couple passages on before we move further. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of the children uh, of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Uh, then also in verse 11, Ephesians 1, verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So we believe that. We believe that, that God predestined ones to salvation. 
Now, the question is, did he predestine specific ones, and therefore they have no free will in the matter? He he predestined someone. Josh, I choose you. God says, you're going to be saved. You can't do anything about it. You're going to be saved. But, Jacob, you're going to be lost, and you can't do anything about that either. Uh, Is that the way it worked? That's That's what Calvinistic predestination teaches. And we think the Bible plainly denies that. And if Ephesians 1 stood by itself, as that was the only passage we had that touched on the subject, we might be tempted to lean in that maybe, direction. Maybe, but I don't even think it's conclusive there. It's not conclusive, but we have other passages that we have to harmonize, one of them being Second Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all to come to repentance. First Peter two or first Timothy two verse four, God will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. So God wants all to be saved. So that, that that's a contradiction. That's an impossibility. So, so that Calvinistic sense of predestination couldn't be true. Where I pick you, but I reject you, because he wants he wants you and you to be saved. Yeah. So that and those verses are too plain to miss. Right. So what is what is the predestination of Ephesians one? God predestined a class of people who will be saved. They are the people who will hear the truth, have open hearts to accept it, and to obediently follow his will. God, from eternity, God planned that he was going to save those uh, who would come to him in obedience through his son, Jesus Obedient Christ. Faith. Yeah. Those are the ones he predestined. He made a plan. He predetermined that those who would hear, believe, and obey would be saved. He, he, he predestined that class of people. It's been his plan throughout and before he, the world began. And, and his desire is that all men will come to that class. Yes. All men will be in that condition. Now, not all will be, but that's, that's what his desire is, not that some would be lost without hope and others would be saved without danger. Okay. So when Don says... We consider this doctrine of predestination a false. We consider Calvinistic predestination a false doctrine. Okay, but but we believe in biblical predestination. All right. So now on to the meat of his question. That wasn't the question. That was a statement. But we yeah yeah he was, was making statement. he was making a statement but on a true statement. Okay. Sorry. Now we cleared that up. Next to his question, uh, he says, "Do you also believe that those who believe in this doctrine are heading to hell, or do you think this isn't a salvation issue?" You know, we we had a, a a virtual Bible study episode on a while back about that phrase. Is it a salvation issue? Right. Who gets to say what's a salvation issue or not? You know, if you're if you're denying a truth of the Scripture, is that a salvation issue? Well, I'm a, can I knowingly reject a biblical a, a biblical doctrine and it not be have any effect on my eternal salvation? I, I wouldn't want to do it. Wouldn't want to be in that. that I, I wouldn't position. want to be in that situation. So, you know, uh, but so he says, what about those who believe in this? Do you? He says, do you think it's not a salvation, or do you believe that our souls depend on getting this right? Uh, and if that's the case, then uh, do you believe that Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, George Whitefield? Uh, John Calvin, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, Arthur Pink, to name a few, uh, may now be spending eternity lost. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what I think about Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther or John Calvin, where they are in eternity. That is of no consequence whatsoever. It doesn't matter what I think about where they are. They're in the hands of a, 
of a true and just God who will deal with them according to their works, and that's in his realm, not mine. I, I don't like questions like that. There's no value in even dealing with questions. What I think about where those men are, I don't even have an opinion on. That's not my business. That's not that's not in my realm. And what I think about it, one way or the other, is of no consequence whatsoever. I, and I don't even think about it. But he's listed some folks there who've led potentially more people away from the truth of the gospel than yeah. any others you could think of. But um, it doesn't whether or not this particular understanding of how God is working is a salvation issue or not. That is that there there are more significant questions to answer. Where does that doctrine lead? What are yeah. the what are the ramifications of that doctrine? Yeah. And how does it manifest itself in our lives? And that's really a more pertinent issue because there are more there's some serious ramifications if you yeah. believe this, exactly because this because Calvinism and predestined this this false idea of predestination is one of the basic tenets of Calvinism, and that system of theology that Calvinism has led lots of people away from the truth, causing them not to be obedient to the plan of God. And therefore, it's a very dangerous thing that these men have promoted. I certainly wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Right. And I do think I do think when you think of all the ramifications of that, it is affecting people's salvation. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't like the phrase salvation issue. But I do think that believing this false doctrine and all of its related aspects is going to cost a lot of people their souls. All right. Here's what uh, Kent had to say about it. The false doctrine of unconditional predestination is indeed a salvation issue, such is the case because it stands in opposition to the attributes and character of God. It also rejects the conditions of one's obedience to the gospel as well as the necessity of faithfulness after one's initial conversion. And this is where we're getting into those ramifications. Right, right, right. on to that. Yeah. He said, it is not my desire to see any individual lost in hell. However, God has already ju- uh, so judged those who pervert the gospel to be in a lost condition. It is my sincere desire to confront false teachers with the gospel of Christ and persuade them to accept and obey it. The consequences of one's teaching and following false doctrine will not nullify truth because of their sincerity. While sincerity is a commendable and necessary element of thought, it takes more than sincerity to be acceptable to God. It takes acceptance and obedience of truth based upon one's sincerity. And so thank you for those comments, Kent. So he's getting the idea that if I believe in this doctrine of predestination, then it may lead me to the idea that, well, it doesn't really matter how I live or if I'm faithful or if I'm obedient, that God's chosen to save me. And that's pretty much a done deal. It does have this doctrine of Calvinistic predestination has soul damning ramifications. We could say that. Yeah. Okay. Josh. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking about a guy I used to work with who told me there's essential topics and there's non-essential topics of the Bible, you know. So these things are essential and these things are non-essential. I don't know how you come up with that. I think it's along the same lines of the salvation. Yeah, it's it a is. salvation it issue. This man must have got a list that floated down in a right. sheet from heaven or something. But, but the these deal, are essentials and these aren't. Well, but the deal is Jesus spent a lot of time talking about false teachers. Paul spent a lot of time talking about it. You know, things that people would say, well, that's a non-essential issue. But they spend a lot of time talking about focusing on the truth and beware of false teachers teaching things that are opposed to the truth. Yeah. You know, it you know if, if, if it's something that's taught in the scriptures and I reject it, 
uh, you know, who can say that's not really important? You know, now there's some things that we don't know that I don't think are important. How long was the boat that the that the apostles were in when Jesus came walking across the water to them? I don't know. Well, well I, 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 I was a 20-foot boat. I, I know that was a 20-footer. It had to at least be a 20-footer. They couldn't all got in it. Well, that's not even revealed, and I don't think anybody would go to hell for believing it was a 22-footer or a 20-footer or who would ever even have an opinion. But if it's a revealed thing, how can you say that's not important? You don't have to worry. You don't even have to. You don't have to believe. You don't have to believe that. It, if it's revealed, how can you say it's not important to believe it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be some questions. We talked about. We just talked about the binding and loosing of Satan. There'll be some questions about what exactly does that mean. But um, we certainly, it, our our goal needs to be to understand uh, the things that have been revealed. Yeah. As exactly. God has revealed them. Exactly. All right, we're overdue for a break. When we get back, um, oh, boy, the Revolutionary War. Got a question. Could you participate in a Revolutionary War? Now, this is a, uh, well, 200-plus-year-old question, so maybe not so pertinent for the actual maybe. Revolutionary War. But could there be another instance where yeah. Christians would have to make that decision? Yeah. And there are potentially Christians in the world today, right now, where there's revolutions going on in their country. Uh, can they participate? Well, what do you know? Get your gun or sit back on the sidelines? That will be the question right after this. Got a question about something you've heard on the virtual Bible study? Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. After seeing an exciting basketball game on TV, he decides he'd like to be a professional basketball player. A few days later, after hearing of a daring rescue from a burning building, he's convinced he wants to be a fireman. Not long after that, he learns about men going into outer space, and he is sure that he would really love to become an astronaut. What in the world is wrong with this guy? Why can't he decide on a career course and stick with it? Why is he always changing his mind about important things? The answer is simple. He's a child. It's inherent in children to frequently change their minds. They may be firmly convinced of something one day and ready to do the opposite the next day. We understand that this is their nature. They will hopefully outgrow this tendency, and when they do, we will say that they have matured. There are some that are spiritual babes. In fact, everyone is in that category upon first obeying the gospel. Unfortunately, some never grow past that point. These folks are forever troubled by something new or different that they hear. It might be something about our worship or about the work of the church or about a matter of morality like divorce and remarriage or, well, you get the idea. These people can never be settled as to what they think about the important truths contained in God's word. Let us put it simply and directly as we can. Grow up. Ephesians 4 verse 14 urges us, quote, that we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You need to know what you believe and you need to know why you believe it. If you hold a view, endorse a position, or would teach or recommend an alternate view, you should have strong reasons for doing so. You should be ready to logically and rationally defend the position you espouse. If you can't do that, you're manifesting the fact that you're a spiritual child, immature, and you are likely to be tossed to and fro by whatever new thing comes along. Simply put, grow up. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. 
My name is Jim Meisner. I worship at the Church of Christ in Deckerville, Michigan. Be sure to listen to the virtual Bible study and watch it. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The virtual Bible study rolls along. Back on the program tonight, reminding you this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You find out more about us at our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. You also can send us an email, questions at collegeu.com, with any questions or comments you might have based upon the things you've heard about on the program and maybe suggest future topics for uh, discussion on the virtual Bible study questions at collegeview.com. Don't forget those bumper stickers. We want to get rid of those. All right, let's go on. We got a, we got a tough question here. It was, it was much longer than I was able to put in the email, Jacob. So let me, let me read a, a more thoroughly the question. This is sent in by Jeremy. Where's Jeremy located? I don't know. Okay. Jeremy uh, from parts unknown. Yeah. Okay. From Texas. Texas. All Jeremy's right. in Texas. Thanks, okay. Jeremy, for emailing in. He says, does the Christian have biblical authority to use a, fire, a firearm in the manner described in the Second Amendment? To further explain, the Second Amendment is namely in place to protect the citizens of the United States from a tyrannical government. At its most fundamental bottom line, this amendment is about shooting, uh, about to get controversial here, shooting police and or government officials if they become oppressive. Okay. From the best of my understanding, we are to submit to the ruling authorities, according to Romans 13. And I must admit, you don't see Christians overthrowing the Roman government in the first century. In fact, I often find comfort and encouragement from looking at the persecution the first century Christians went through. We can still be Christians, no matter what government we live in. At least we're not being thrown to the lions yet. My main question, I guess, is would the biblical Christian have biblical authority to participate in a modern-day revolutionary war as it was in the late 1700s? I mean, I understand that this revolution was how we, became, how we came to live in the nation we do today with our religious freedoms and liberties. But if those were to be taken away, then what? I understand we would continue to spread the gospel no matter what laws were put in place. But do we have the authority to overthrow an oppressive government to keep our conveniences and freedoms? If there were another revolutionary war next year to throw off said oppressive government, are we authorized to take up arms? I understand we live in a nation of patriotism, and it's very easy to fall into the sinful side of American pride. But at what point does our patriotism exceed and cross the line of our being Christians? At what point do we have to step back and say that there's no biblical authority from a certain line forward? Where is the line? He says he's been struggling with this question for some time. Good question uh jeremy and uh let's just start off by saying hope that we never have to uh make that decisions in real life yeah um i think you know just starting out i think he made a real interesting observation in the course of stating his question he didn't see the christians trying to throw overthrow the roman government and it was a very oppressive government toward them specifically yeah And, and 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 so jesus uh the inspired apostles other faithful christians of the first century they were not political activists. They they, they made no measure to try and overthrow that government. Yeah, but that 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 probably got to tell us a lot right there. Yeah, and uh, they were told that they were to honor the king in First Peter chapter two verse uh, seventeen. That king was the one who was trying to burn them at the stake, crucify them, uh, so forth. Uh, so they certainly were not told to organize and activate. Uh, activate. Uh, so that's the case. Now, now re, re, and read that. 
read that completely there in Second uh, Peter, or First Peter, chapter two, verse seventeen. Thir- uh, thirteen. I'm looking at thirteen. Seven, oh, seventeen. Uh, and, and seventeen. Uh, verse 13, 1 Peter 2, 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or as to governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For in it is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Yep. So, <clears throat> and again, that was in, in a time when the government was pretty awful. And yet that was still the instruction. He mentioned in the question, Romans 13, Romans 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. There's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. I think it's pretty straightforward. We got to we got to obey the king. Now the only the only upset, uh, exception to that would be um, Acts chapter five, um, when the apostles were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, uh, the famous statement by Peter and the other apostles, Acts five twenty nine. We ought to obey God rather than men. That would be the only exception. And so the only the only time we would resist government authority is in the case where they were instructing us to do something contrary to the will of God. So certainly oppression or hindering our religious freedom, those types of things are not justification. Because we don't, first century Christians weren't. Now, he does have a wrinkle that, well, what does the law of the land state that citizens are supposed to do this if the government becomes tyrannical? I mean, so are we caught in some kind of catch-22 where the leaders are saying you shouldn't do this, but the constitution is saying you should does is that some kind of loophole that we find ourselves in i've heard christians describe it as such you know and then i've also heard this sort of scenario what government are you under you know so go back to 1776 and when when the colonies declared independence against great britain were they then constituting a new government to which the citizens should be subject yeah you know, and I've I've heard that question, but I think that's sort of begging the point. It, it, it's clear that this was was an opposition to the existing governmental authority. I've I, and I don't like I don't I don't necessarily like this conclusion because as as Jeremy mentioned in his question, we're the beneficiaries of what they did in the Revolutionary War. We live in the best place in the world, the best place that the world has ever known in the history of time, and 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 therefore we we are benefited by the fact that those men stood up in opposition to the tyrannical king of England. And so we we are in a blessed place, and what they did helped to bring it to pass, and I, I think we're grateful for that. But I, and, and so I don't, I don't like the conclusion that I've personally come to, but I think the conclusion that I have is that if you were back there in, in 1776, you would have had to have been loyal to the king based upon what the scriptures are saying. All right, Josh. Yeah, thank you. I think you guys are both right, hitting the nail right on the head. I mean, I think it'd be a tough situation if it came down to it. But every every instance in in the scripture where you see a Christian or a God follower being persecuted, they just continue to serve God. I was thinking about Daniel. Uh, laws were made, decrees were made. He just continued doing what he was doing. He didn't 
you know, go yeah. up and start throwing stuff. Like, what are you talking about? You can't make those rules. He just continued doing what he was and, doing. And before. that's kind of interesting. That's a good example because Daniel was potentially in a position where he could have led a revolt against right. uh, the king because he, he was very powerful in Babylon. He was a powerful. He was like number two in uh, in the country. <laughs> And he had a lot of people who would have been loyal to him, and you know he might have said we could we could throw we could overthrow this mess and and set up something better. He made no effort to do that. Dude, that's a good case. All right, uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts in the chat room tonight. Still been quiet uh, in the chat room. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven is the email address or, or the telephone number to use. Questions at collegeview.com. Uh, Kent in Calhoun, Georgia says, as individual Christians, we have a divine obligation that mandates that we provide for our families, 1 Timothy 4.16. 5.16. Yeah. 5.16. Such would be inclusive of personal protection from physical danger. While war is a terrible concept and should only be used as a last resort to protect our personal freedoms, if it came to the point that civil government became so intrusive against the home as to place our families in physical danger, I believe that there is generic authority for Christians... To participate in an overflow of such oppression, even if it means the use of physical force. I don't know, Kent. I might I might have to differ. Well, you, we don't we don't we don't have very many differences on these questions, but I I might have to differ with you there because, again, you got to take the case of the first century Christians. There was a government that was uh, oppressively affecting them, their safety, their families' well beings. Uh, yet there was no indication of any political effort to overthrow them, that government. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I, I I I wish I could come to that conclusion, but I don't. I'm not there yet. Let's take a break. When we get back, we got two more questions to go. Uh, Ephesians five twenty one. What does it mean to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord? And oh, this is going to be a good one. Do elders have absolute authority over the congregation? How far does the authority of the elders go? That's a question that many have asked in the past. We'll talk about that when we get back. Don't go anywhere. We'll go to the top of the hour right after this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A recent survey of denominational pastors found that 77% felt that they did not have a good marriage. 38% were divorced or currently in a divorce process, and 30% said they had either been in an ongoing affair or a one-time sexual encounter with a parishioner. That information is via the Francis A. Schaeffer Institute on Church Leadership Development. The Word of God says in Luke 6, verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the program tonight, and uh, we're glad that you're here. We're taking listener questions. If you've got one, submit it. We want to include it in a future edition of the virtual Bible study. Uh, we got a question from Kent. Uh, this is this is uh, Man Super Kent Clark. Yeah, Kent Clark. Who, yes. I don't think he's in the chat. He was earlier. Oh, he yeah, is. yeah, he's there. He's he is. Yeah. Uh, He's Kent Clark, so he calls himself Man Super rather than Superman. I like that. Uh, And he sent in a question just uh, asking from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, 
submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. What's Paul saying through inspiration? Well, uh, I guess I'm seeing that pretty straightforwardly, that we we ought to be submissive to one another, but it's always under the, the qualifier of the, the will of God supersedes all else. It does. And so now, uh, if, if I can... If I can submit to you, and and doing so not violate the the law of God, then I ought to do it. You know, for instance, uh, oh, we're we're having a big debate. You know, should we have should we have worship services on Sunday evening at five o'clock or at six o'clock? Well, I'll tell you, I'm a big six o'clock fan. I like the longer afternoon. But there's uh, oh, there's some guys, and they really want to have it at five o'clock, and they really feel strongly that it it would be helpful to have it at six o'clock and well you know five o'clock or six o'clock it doesn't really it's, it's god doesn't care what time we meet i know that and although i have a pretty strong opinion about it i can yield that uh, and and i should submit if 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 the the overwhelming uh uh sentiment of 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 the congregation is let's move the time of services that's a now that i think i we could identify as not a salvation issue okay that's not a salvation right and well, so that because the bible didn't talk about that's it that's right yeah, yeah. and so uh you know i i think we submit we, we we can't submit in matters of doctrine i'm not submitting to you in matter if, if you come up with this crazy idea that people do not have to be baptized to be saved and you start spreading that I'm not submitting to you about that. In fact, I'm going to oppose you adamantly about that. I'm not going to submit to you in, in, in regards to those things. But in regards to things that are not critical to truth and righteousness, I should be submissive to all. So you're interpreting the fear of the Lord there, to submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, that being the within the parameters of God's will. You submit within the parameters of God's will. Well, I think that would be in there. Okay. Now... Would it also be correct, because I take it this way, you submit another because of the fear of God. You submit because it is God's will that I submit. I agree. Okay. All right, so two angles to look at there from that verse. But certainly the idea of submission, uh, this is a foreign concept to many in our society today. Yeah, and how often have we heard about uh, maybe pretty significant and terrible church problems and then you know, and and someone says, "Did you hear about the church over there? Yeah, that church over there—they split, and they, you know, they really had a it, it, the whole thing blew up. People left, went different ways. Well, what was it about? And then they tell you what it was about. You, you kind of say, "What? They split over that? You know, it wasn't a doctrinal thing. It was it was human, preference, human preference, opinion, personality, and it wasn't about the truth of God's word." Uh, that's happened way too many times, and it, what it what it indicates is that Christians haven't learned this principle of being submissive to one another. Yeah, and it may not result in a church split, but certainly damage can be done in the church not split just because people are unwilling to yield and be submissive in areas of judgment. And when it's an area of judgment, uh, we don't need to get anywhere close to the line of doing damage over our personal opinions and, and think so. We are to be submissive, and that means we, we stay away from those controversies that we 
willing to yield. Yeah. Uh, Peter said, First Peter 5, 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. And I really do think the reason the, the reason why we wouldn't be submissive to one another is because of pride. Yeah. Uh, if, if we weren't so proud, it'd be easier to submit to one another. We need, we need to work on that. Certainly, it is uh, perhaps uh, one of the number one problems facing churches today, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Is the idea of, of submission. Uh, now, uh, on to, what, well, let's see, what, let's see what the other Kent tonight in Calhoun, Georgia says, Ephesians 5.21 requires us as Christians to submit to one another by blending our lives together in God's arrangements and order. So blending our lives together, that's a good uh, way to put that, is that okay. we, uh, we come together. All right. All right, good. We got one last question. Looks like we're going to get them all in tonight. Amazing. So, yeah. uh, this question comes from Dan, and I believe Dan's in Florida. Uh, he says, "Do elders have absolute authority over the congregation?" My guess is, if I know who this Dan is, my guess is he probably knows the answer to that too. But just wants to spark some conversation about this here, and I think it's a worthy question. And absolutes, a pretty absolute uh, word there. Absolute authority over the congregation. Well, to that, Jeff. Uh, in the chat room responds regarding the question on elders no they do not have absolute authority over the congregation if they start doing things that are in opposition to the bible then the congregation should not do those things and have the elders who support those things removed from their position if they won't repent only god and christ have absolute authority uh, as uh, christ is head of the church i think that's right the 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 i think the uh, most applicable um text in regards to this question has got to be first peter five beginning verse one the elders which are among you i exhort so he's talking to elders he says the elders which are among you i exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of christ and also partaker of the glory that shall be revealed feed the flock of god which is among you taking the oversight thereof not by constraint but willingly not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind notice neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So, uh, you know, a person with absolute authority would be one who is lording it over. I think those would be synonymous expressions, and he says exactly don't do that here. Now, let me get to, let's let's cut down to uh, the meat of the argument here, though. Which do you see in your history, have you seen as a bigger danger to the church? Elders who want to lord it over and have absolute authority, or members who don't want to submit and claim that the elders are wanting to lord it over? I've made this point before. I think you're exactly right, Jacob. Is there a danger that elders would begin to lord it over the flock? Well, sure, it's addressed there. That's a potential danger. But I've been around for quite a while now, and I've been a member of several different churches with elders. And I don't think, I know for a fact that I've never been in a church where I felt that the elders were overstepping their bounds or exceeding their authority. Uh, I I don't think I've ever, I, I know I've never been in a church where the elders were lording it over the flock. But I have been in congregations where members weren't submitting to the leadership of elders. I've been in several congregations where that was a problem. I think that's the bigger problem. Uh, you can't ignore either problem, but the bigger problem is not 
that elders are going to overstep their bounds, but that members are not going to follow God's plan and be submissive to the leadership and, of elders. And I mean, just by the the design of the of the uh, of elders and the and the organization, the chances of elders being lord lording it over or members being non-submissive the chances are going to be on the side of the members being unsubmissive yeah. because they're the more spiritually immature so yeah, yeah. if there's a conflict in the church and some are saying the elders are lording it over and and some are saying that the members are being unsubmissive i'm going to go with on the i'm going to line up on the elder side of that uh, nine times out of ten i think yeah uh and they do have they, they do have oversight authority but it's a it's it's under the authority of the Lord. The Lord is the ultimate head. But uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey them that have the rule over you. Notice it says they have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, that they may give account, uh, as they which must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So it's even called there a rule. They have rule. They have authority to oversee local congregation. But they have to do it uh, in conjunction with the the re- revealed truth of God, they can't go beyond what God has authorized them to do. Now, let's uh, let's get let's get down to this too. They're going to make some rules that are going to be based on judgment. Well, really, that's the only that's the only place where they can make decisions. Exactly, because. In doctrinal matters, it's already lined out. Done deal. We're not going to submit to them in doctrinal matters. We're, we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ yeah. in doctrinal matters. And so in in regards to doctrine, we're not submitting to the elders. Right. We're submitting to the Lord. So what would we have to submit to them about? A judgment matters. Yep. Matters wherein we have general authority, and therefore we have to use expediencies to carry out those judgment, those uh, those yeah. things. Yeah. Those would be judgments we got to submit. Yeah. Same thing we have to do when we submit to our brethren who aren't elders. Is These are matters of judgment. And sit down, swallow your pride, and get in line. Yeah. But in regards to Dan's question, do elders have absolute authority? No. They have, they have authority that has been granted by the Lord that is limited by the Lord's will. Okay. I like the way that Kent said it in his email. He says, First Peter 5, 1 through 4 certainly indicates that elders in the local church have authority insofar as the work of the congregation. However, the text indicates that such authority is delegated rather than being absolute. In absolute authority, one could act acceptably in an arbitrary manner. The authority of elders is indeed complete. However, it is delegated to them by Christ through the verbally and plenary inspired word. Elders are to so act as authorized by the New Testament, not simply by arbitrary whims and desires. Delegated authority of elders does include matters of expediency. I think you're right, Ken. You know, the elders couldn't say, well, we're making a, a ruling here, and we're going to start observing the Lord's Supper on Friday nights. Yeah, we're not meeting on Sunday. It's too busy. Friday yeah. nights is the time. Yeah. No, they don't have that authority. They can't make that call. Yeah. And we would we would not submit to them in that because in submitting to them, we'd be denying the Lord. We're going to submit to the Lord in that. Now, let's say uh, they made the decision that, well, we're going to keep meeting on Sunday, but we're moving the time. Nine o'clock's too late. We've got there are members that need to meet at seven o'clock on Sunday morning. Well, that caused a stink, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, I, I think they could do that. I don't know that it would be a wise and expedient decision. It may not be an expedient decision, but if they made the decision based upon the facts at hand and they said we need to move the service times to 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, that means there's no more sleeping in. But but yeah, this would be one of those things. They They could make such a judgment, and we should submit. But here's a place where maybe they could become lords over the flock and say, we don't have to explain our reasons. We're meeting at 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. You be here or else. Well, now I think then, and I, of course, nobody's ever known an eldership that did that. But if they did, then I would think maybe they have gotten to the point uh, that that uh, Peter was talking about in First Peter 5, verse 3, that they were lording it over the flock. Right. Then maybe we got a problem, but uh, that's not typical. And we have people who are kicking up a stink. For a whole lot less significant reasons but, than that. Uh, real quickly, we're just out of time. But I'll I tell you, there is an application of this. I don't know how many times I've talked to people, and they're in a congregation, and the congregation is being led by the elders in directions that violate the will of God. They're 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 doing unauthorized work, right, and right. they're doing it in unauthorized ways. They, they, in other words, they are violating the authority of Scripture. And I've heard people say, well... I don't go along with that, but it's up to the elders. They're the ones making the decisions. And so there's a case of somebody submitting to the elders who are violating their role and and, and who are not following the authority of God. That's the time to take a stand. That's the time to push back. Yeah. All right. Kent, uh, in the chat room, says thanks for the comments on his question on submitting to others. Uh, you mentioned some reasons why I asked the questions, that being problems among brethren and in churches and, and pride. So... Yeah, it's a universal problem, isn't it? Uh, it, it's, a, I mean, it's a problem that people are going to deal with throughout time, and uh, if you're not experiencing it now, you will before long. So yeah. uh, we've got to make sure that we're diligent in that area of submission. All right, good questions tonight, good uh, good questions from our listeners. Any closing comments, Josh? Well, I, think it's, I think it's good. A lot of good questions. It's always good to hear back from people that are yeah. listening to the show. I, I like the smorgasbord nights. We get to cover a lot of different things, and they're all interesting. Yeah, good questions tonight. All right, Dad, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for being here, uh, Josh. Thank yeah. you for listening to the program. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope we make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.